Well, good morning, everybody. Oh, thank you. Some of y'all are awake. Some of y'all will catch up. It's all good. For those who I do not know, my name is Nick, and I get the privilege of being one of the pastors here at New Vision, and I'm thankful out of all the places you could have chosen to be, you decided to come and worship with our New Vision family. Let me go ahead and give a few disclaimers before I dive in and share a story from my past. Ladies, I'm going to need for you to bestow some grace upon me, because most of the time when I share this story, the ladies give me the stink eye after. I'm done. Just remember, I was young and I'm still in process, okay? Fellas, let me go and help you. As I share what, with you what I'm going to share with you, do not repeat what I did under any circumstances, please, because you will get punched in the throat. All that to say, a few years ago when me and Laura met, um, I had just been diagnosed with type 1 diabetes. I had lost 40 pounds. I had a head full of hair, and I was very confident, everybody. And I thought, man, I love Jesus. Jesus loves me. I am a gift to the world, and some young lady is going to be blessed among women if they are able to be my girlfriend. That's the way I carried myself. Well, I knew of Laura, and then one summer, Laura and I got the privilege of working at a summer day camp program together. I was director of the summer day camp program, and I had known her, and I had seen her before, but she had walked into orientation this summer, and y'all, I wish I could say it was the Holy Spirit descending as a dove upon her, and the Lord was like, this is the one. But no, she was fine. That's what it was. Just full disclosure, I don't want to clean it up. And I had thought to myself, you know what she needs? She needs Nick Person in her life. She will be highly favored among women. And so I, <laughs> whew, it's true, y'all, it's true, you can ask her. And so I decided that I was going to gift her the gift that she had never received before. That was a relationship with me. So I found myself often during that summer going to her classroom, asking if she needed anything, pursuing her, finding out more about her. And time after time, she would tell me, hey, Nick, I want you to know that I have given guys too much power in my life. Right now, I just really want to focus on being single and enjoying my relationship with the Lord. And guys, that's exactly you want a woman that you desire, what kind of attitude you want her to have. My perspective was that just meant try harder. And so I did. And so we continued in this process. We, have, we became friends, and she went on a mission trip to New York. And I remember when she got back from the mission trip, I said, you know what, Laura? I really want to hear about what the Lord did in New York. May I have your number so I can call you and hear about all the things that the Lord did? And she gave me her phone number. And I remember we talked, I remember the first time we talked, we talked for a really, really long time, and we began to establish a friendship. The reason I knew it was a friendship, because every time we would talk just about, she would remind me by saying things like this, I am so happy that you are such a good friend. I'll be honest with y'all. I didn't want another friend. I wanted a forever love. So every time she called me friend, I was like, what did she, I don't, mm -mm. girl, come on now. Do you not know what you have right here? This continued on for a while, and there was one night, I think we went to a Bible study locally in Atlanta, and 
I think we rode together with another friend in the car, and we all went back to our church parking lot that we went to, and I don't know what it was, but that night I was feeling very confident, everybody. And in my head, I just heard, can you feel the love tonight playing in the background? And I was like, I can't feel that love. So I remember as I'm there at Laura's car, she's preparing to leave, and I need to go and walk to my car. Y'all, I just felt it wasn't the spirit moving. Something moved, and I was like, tonight's the night. I'm going to kiss her. <sighs> so I went in for the kiss, y'all. And Laura pulled a move like this. I will tell you, they don't tell you what to do when you're rejected. Like, no one writes a book. If you try to kiss somebody and they say no, here's how you respond. She said, what are you doing? (laughs) Pretty. (laughs) And she said, Nick, I want you to know that, like, hey, I am not going to date you. I don't know if I ever will date you. And for some reason, in my prideful state of being in my young 20s, I took that as ignition for me to say this to her. I said, well, Laura, I understand what you were saying, but I want you to understand that I always get what I want. I was young, y'all. When I said that to her, I guess she felt a lightning bolt of honesty. And then she proceeded to lay it bare as to all the reasons why she would never date me. She would say stuff like this in the course of that response. Hey, Nick, here's the deal. You talk about Jesus, but you do not reflect him. Nick, you talk about humility, and as I look at Jesus, you know, and think about him and the way he walked, you are not humble. Nick, you live your life as if you are a gift to everyone around you, and you are not a gift that I desire to receive. That hurt my feelings. And I remember getting in my car, and I remember thinking to myself, I am never going to talk to this girl again. How dare she be that mean to me? She not know the gift that I am to her? But as I sat in there, sat in that moment of defeat, because it honestly felt like somebody punched me in the face with their words, the more I sat in it, the more I recognized that she was exactly right. Everything she said about me, her perspective on me, her take on me was absolutely right. And I found out in that season that the beauty of defeat is that it can lead to clarity. Now, here's the deal. You, I say can, because we don't have to choose to have clarity. We don't have to allow defeat to be leveraged that way. We can continue to walk in the way we have walked in. We continue to ignore the truth. We can continue to ignore the clarity that God desires to give us through the tool of defeat. Or we could look at it and go, okay, Lord, you have allowed me to come to the end of myself so that I can see what is true, and you want to leverage defeat in a beautiful way that brings me clarity if I'm willing to embrace it. 
As we navigate through Joshua 7, we're going to walk through some hard texts. We're going to read this story, and we're not initially, may not see the beauty of defeat, but I'm telling you, if we just lean in, if we listen, that we will see that there is beauty in defeat. And I pray that our hearts are open and we are ready to receive it today in this place. So let me pray for us. Dear Jesus, thank you so much for who you are and what you do. Lord, thank you how you are able to leverage defeat in order to bring us clarity. And that truly is beautiful. May we be a people in this place that we don't try to defend things, that we don't try to cover things up, but that we don't run and hide. But may we be a people that are willing to hear a word from you. And if it's of you, Lord, I pray that it will take roots in our heart so that we are able to live differently in light of it. So Jesus, have your way in us and through us. Lord, use us in a great way and allow your word to be open to us. Lord, we love you. Lord, we thank you. And Lord, we pray all these things in your awesome and amazing name. Amen. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Joshua chapter 7. We're going to be in Joshua chapter 7. We're going to begin in verse number 1. If you cannot find Joshua chapter 7, if you look between Joshua 6 and Joshua 8, it'll be right there in the middle. You're welcome. Let me bring you up to speed in case you have not been following with us. You haven't been here in a couple of weeks. Basically, Joshua is leading the nation of Israel on win after win after win after win. God is leading these people. He is protecting these people. He's already freed them from a powerhouse of a country, Egypt. He has freed them from slavery. They have navigated the desert. They have crossed the Red Sea. They have crossed the Jordan River that he split in two. God is doing some amazing things. He's allowed the walls of Jericho to fall down down. And the nation of Israel, they blew on some horns and they shouted really loud and the walls came down. In essence, they had a worship service and the walls came down. The theme song for the nation of Israel right now is all I do is win. Everywhere they go and whatever God brings them to, he is able to give them victory. But what we're going to see in this text is one of the most dangerous places to be is on the heels of victory. The nation of Israel has tasted of victory after victory after victory. But it's about to take a turn. Joshua 7.1 says this. But the Israelites were unfaithful in regard to the devoted things. Achan, son of Carmi, the son of Zimri, the son of Zerah, the tribe of Judea, took some of them. So the Lord's anger burned against Israel. So Achan took some of the devoted things, the things that God had set apart for God and God alone. He had taken these things. We don't know why he took them. Maybe it was because he forgot what God had done. And he saw something and he desired it and he decided to take it for himself. And here's the danger in victory. Sometimes victory can lead us to a place of forgetfulness. We forget where this victory came from. We forget that we weren't the ones that secured this victory. We forget and we start to believe our own hype that it's all because of us. Andrew Bonar, he was a pastor at the Free Church of Scotland, says it this way. Let us be as watchful after the victory as before the battle. Let me say that again. Let us be as watchful after the victory as before the battle. Verse number two. Now Joshua sent man from Jericho to Ai, which is near Beth-Avon to the east of Bethel, 
and told them, go up, spy out the region. So the man went up and spied out I. When they returned to Joshua, they said, not all the army will have to go up against I. Send two or 3,000 men to take it and do not weary the whole army, for only a few people live there. So about 3,000 went up, but they were routed by the man of Ai, who killed about 36 of them. They chased the Israelites from the city gate as far as the stone quarries and struck them down on the slopes. At this, the hearts of the people melted in fear and became like water. Notice that last line. If you've been reading the narrative of Joshua with us, we have seen the people's hearts melting as a response to them seeing the power of God. And now here's the very nation of Israel, and their hearts are melting, and it's becoming like water because they're now afraid. They're now seeing, wait a second. We are not the ones who have secured our victory. We can still lose. Defeat is still a part of our narrative. What is going on? Notice that as they surveyed the land, they go, you know what? We don't need everybody. It'll be all right. There's not many people. It'll be fine. Victory can lead us to be overly confident in ourselves. Some of the most famous last words is this, I got this. (laughs) No, you don't. Listen, it being Super Bowl Sunday, I'm reminded of a very painful time in my life. It was a couple of years ago. On Super Bowl Sunday, the team I was cheering from, because it's the city that I'm from and I call home, they were whooping the Patriots 28 to 3. Thank you. Hopefully this is not new news, what I'm about to tell you had happened. Y'all, I was so confident. I like strutting around my living room like the Falcons. We're about to win the Super Bowl. And then Tom Brady, bless his heart. Tom Brady decided he didn't want to lose the Super Bowl. So he didn't. And he got another ring, and Matt Ryan is still without said ring, but it's okay. But here's the deal. As I watched that game, like, I was very confident, right? I was very confident in what the Falcons had done until they stopped doing the very thing that got them there. And they ended up losing. See, we are all capable of believing our own hype and believing that victory lies with us and not in the king. And it can lead us to a place of defeat. Joshua 7, verse 6. Then Joshua tore his clothes and fell face down to the ground before the ark of the Lord, remaining there till evening. The elders of Israel did the same and sprinkled dust on their heads. And Joshua said, Alas, sovereign Lord, why did you ever bring this people across the Jordan to deliver us into the hands of the Amorites to destroy us? If only we had been content to stay on the other side of the Jordan. Pardon your servant, Lord. What can I say? Now that Israel has been routed by its enemies, the Canaanites and the other people of the country will hear about this and they will surround us and wipe out our name from the earth. What then will you do for your own great name? Wow. This is highly dramatic. Amen. I want you to notice a couple of things. See, in the midst of defeat, sometimes we don't see things as clearly. Like, think about this. He said, we have been routed. Routed. 
Don't know if you remember, it said they sent about two to 3,000 men to take I. Y'all remember that? Because I said it like five minutes ago. Two to 3,000. And then later on in that text, it says, but 36 of them were killed. How many? 36. I am no man of war. I am not a general. And some of y'all are like, praise the lamb. But hear me. If I was to call something a route, I would think, man, you lost half your people, or you lost a third of your people, or you lost almost all of your people. They lost 36, and I'm not saying those lives didn't matter, but if you step back from it, it's not what we would call a routing. And then he does something that we all are tempted to do. We start blaming others and blaming God for the state we find ourselves in. Well, God, where were you? God, what were you doing? God, why did victory slip through our fingers? God, what are you up to? God, have you fallen asleep at the wheel? And listen, this is not a new move. We see this move all the way back in the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve desired the fruit. They ate the fruit. Their eyes were opened and they went and hid. God comes to them and says, hey, what did you do? And what do they immediately do? Adam goes, hey, that helpmate that you gave me, not so helpful. It's Eve's fault, God. God goes to Eve and goes, Eve, what have you done? Hey, God, that serpent that you made, he tempted me with that fruit. So we are a people that always are trying to shift the blame to somebody else. It's not our fault. It's their fault. Well, if they would have done this, if they would have done that, then I wouldn't be in the state that I find myself in. Verse number 10. The Lord said to Joshua, stand up. I like that line. It has an exclamation mark there. I want you to think back to your childhood when your mom and your dad called you by your full name. This is the moment Joshua finds himself in. What are you doing down on your face? Israel has sinned. Clarity comes. They have violated my covenant, which I commanded them to keep. They have taken some of the devoted things. They have stolen. They have lied. They have put them with their own possessions. That is why the Israelites cannot stand against their enemies. They turn their backs and run because they have been made liable to destruction. I will not be with you anymore unless you destroy whatever among you is devoted to destruction. Go. Consecrate the people. Tell them, consecrate yourselves in preparation for tomorrow. For this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. There are devoted things among you, Israel. You cannot stand against your enemies until you remove them. In the morning, present yourselves tribe by tribe. The tribe the Lord chooses shall come forward, clan by clan. The clan the Lord chooses shall come forward, family by family. And the family the Lord chooses shall come forward, man by man. Whoever is caught with the devoted things shall be destroyed by fire, along with all that belongs to him. He has violated the covenant of the Lord and has done an outrageous thing in Israel. These people are in a very defeated state. But in the midst of this is a picture of grace. And you might be going, Nick, I don't read that in my text. Well, God in his goodness is revealing the heart of the issue and the heart of the problem. That is grace. 
Although it doesn't feel that way, it doesn't feel like grace in the moment, I started thinking about my own life. Have you ever been caught? Just by show of hands, how many of y'all ever been caught? Mm-hmm. In the moment of being caught, I'm not like, praise God, you found this out, mother. <laughs> Blessings, Father, for doing your research. You are right. I lied. <laughs> like none of us in the moment rejoice about our defeat in the moment that we are caught. But can I tell you, hindsight can give a lot of wisdom. As I look back at my life and I think about those moments that I were caught, I can't help but have some thankfulness and gratefulness that I was caught. Because the thing about this, if I hadn't, if if light hadn't penetrated those dark things I was doing, where would I have ended up? Where would the story have ended? What could have been taken and requested of me because of the pathway I was on? So there was, in the midst of defeat, it is a picture of grace. And here's the deal, and I didn't know it now but I'm starting to learn it, that a fitting response to grace is repentance. Hey, I have been shown the error. I have been, it has been revealed to me of where that can end. And so I am going to turn. Repentance is a change of mind, a change of direction. So I'm going to change because of what was exposed. Now, we can continue as a people to run towards those broken things, but a fitting response to grace is repentance. Lord, wow. You have given me your love in spite of all I have given you. I can't help but turn and walk with you. A fitting response to grace is repentance. Verse 16. Early the next morning, Joshua and Israel came forward by tribes, and Judea was chosen. The clans of Judea came forward, and the Zerites were chosen. He had the clan of the Zerites come forward by families, and Zimri was chosen. Let's pause right real quick. Could you imagine being there? Like, imagine, like, being called forward, and your clan's name or your family's name was called, and you're like, did you do something? I didn't do nothing. What's in your tent? <laughs> like, just imagine that moment. Like, sometimes when I read scripture, I'm like, could you imagine being there? Because everyone's like, it's you. I knew something smelly was in your tent. He had the clan of the Zeratites come forward by families, and Zimri was chosen. Joshua had his family come forward man by man, and Achan, son of Carmi, son of Zimri, the son of Zerah of the tribe of Judah, was chosen. You can hear the crowd go, ooh. I knew something awful, something was off with that Achan. I knew it. Then Joshua said to Achan, my son, Give glory to the Lord, the God of Israel, and honor him. Tell me what you have done. Do not hide it from me. Verse 20. Achan replied, it is true. I have sinned against the Lord, the God of Israel. This is what I have done. When I saw in the plunder a beautiful robe from Babylonia, 200 shekels of silver and a bar of gold weighing 50 shekels, I coveted them and I took them. They are hidden in the ground inside my tent with the silver underneath Sometimes when I read scripture, I am very prone to point my fingers at those who are caught in their place of disobedience. But the more I read about Achan and the more I read about the whole narrative of scripture, the more I see that this reveals who I really am. 
See, Achan didn't do something new. We still fall for this same rhythm and formula of sin. This was established in the Garden of Eden. And here's that formula of sin. We see it. We desire it. We take it. And then we hide. We see it. We desire it. We take it. And then we hide. That's our story when it comes to sin. And let me paint it a little bit more clearly to you. Verse 20 in Joshua 7. Achan replied, it is true, I have sinned against the Lord, the God of Israel. This is what I have done. When I, say it with confidence, it's right there in front of you. When I, when I saw, he saw something he desired. And the plunder, a beautiful robe from Babylonia, 200 shekels of silver and a bar of gold weighing 50 shekels, I coveted meaning I desired it, and I, I took them. They are hidden in the ground inside my tent with the silver underneath. See, this is not just what Achan has done. This is what I have done, but this pattern was started in the garden. Let me remind you, we already went back there this morning. Adam and Eve. They saw the fruit. They desired the fruit. It looks good for food. Then they took the fruit, and then what did they go and do? They went and they hid. And y'all, as I'm reading this about Achan, and I'm recognizing that about Adam and Eve, the same is true for me. And there is a very high cost of sin, everybody. It says that the wages of sin is death. Think about the cost of sin in the garden. It continued to multiply its influence and wreak havoc. Aching sin is wreaking havoc. And here's the other thing I just want to point out to us. Sometimes we think that our sin only impacts us. That if I sin, this is me doing it to myself. It doesn't impact anybody else. Listen, with all sincerity, let me tell you this. Your sin impacts more than just you. You might think it doesn't impact anybody else. You might think it won't hurt anybody else. But in order to cover it, it will cost you more and more and more until you can't pay the price. I'm telling you, it doesn't just impact you. Those things that are kept in darkness only wreaks more and more havoc. And listen, there are those of us in this room that could go, amen. I tried to keep my sin a secret, but it wreaked havoc on all those around me. In verse 22 we are going to see the ugliness and the cost of sin in an up-close and personal way. And I'm telling you, as a pastor and a communicator, sometimes when I come to passages like this, I'm like, ugh, can we just skip that part? Because it's not pretty. But as I was preparing and just listening, the Lord said, Nick, this is a picture of the cost of sin. And Nick, I know you don't want to behold it, and I know you don't want to look at it, but Nick, it's necessary to understand the real high cost of sin. 
Verse 22. So Joshua sent messengers, and they ran to the tent, and there it was, hidden in his tent, with the silver underneath. They took the things from the tent, brought them to Joshua and all the Israelites, and spread them out before the Lord. Listen, his sin was laid bare, everybody. Let me go ahead and tell you as a friend and a co-heir in the kingdom of God, what we are trying to keep in darkness will always come to light and be laid bare. Then Joshua, together with all Israel, took Achan, son of Zerah, the silver, the robe, the gobar, his sons and daughters, his cattle, donkeys and sheep, his tent, and all that he had to the valley of Achor. Joshua said, why have you brought this trouble on us? The Lord will bring trouble on you today. Then all Israel stoned him, and after they had stoned the rest, they burned them. Over Achan, they heaped up a large pile of rocks, which remains to this day. Then the Lord turned from his fierce anger. Don't miss that part. Then the Lord turned from his fierce anger. Therefore, that place has been called the Valley of Achor, Ever since. We read that passage of scripture, and for some of us, we go, see, he, I told you, I told you. This God of the Old Testament, he's an angry God. He's mad at everybody. He's just killing everybody. He's just killing everything. Look at what happened. Look at what he did to Achan's family. Look at what God did to them. How could he do such a thing? I have to remind us of this. God says he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so if we believe that our king is a graceful and merciful king today, then he was in the past as well. And we look at that and we go, well, look what he did. I want us to understand something. That Achan's sin required a payment. Because the wages of sin is death. And then it says this, then the Lord turned from his fierce anger. Why? Because the payment was satisfied in that moment. And I look at that story and I go, whew, Lord, that is heavy. But then I start thinking about my king and seeing the evidence of grace even in the midst of this sad defeat. See, the king does not leave us in the midst of defeat. The nation of Israel was not left there. The nation of Israel was not wiped out. Adam and Eve were not wiped out in the midst of this. No, the whole nation didn't get marked from the history books. No, why? Because there was grace in the midst of this defeat. The king does not leave us in the midst of defeat. Timothy Keller says it this way. I think it's great. You and I are more sinful than we could ever dare imagine. And we are more loved and accepted than we could ever dare hope. We're going, why would Timothy Keller say something like that? Because listen, because the king in his goodness paid the price to secure our victory. See, he took the cost of our sin, and paid it in full with his life. Why? Because he is a gracious king. 
But he also is a king that is righteous in his ways, and he carries out justice. But when he surrendered his life on a cross, he paid a very high price on our behalf so that we would recognize where victory lies. It doesn't lie in the work of our hands or our goodness because those really are like filthy rags. They lie in the completed work of a king who bore our shame, who bore the consequences of our sin, and took that defeat and redeemed it and gave us victory through his resurrected life on a cross. A couple of days ago, I was reading a devotional by Paul David Tripp, which he's one of my favorite pastors and authors. Paul David Tripp tells a story about his five-year-old son. And if you have a five-year-old or you've had a five-year-old, five-year-olds are not the most rational humans, amen? But he was talking about this encounter that he was having with his five-year-old son. His five-year-old son wanted to do his own way. He wanted to do something his own way, and Paul David Tripp knew it would not lead him to the place in which he wanted to go. And so he tried to have a rational conversation with this five-year-old, and this five-year-old said, no, I want to do it my way. So in grace, he allowed his five-year-old son to try to do it his own way. So his son goes off and does the thing that he wanted to do, And about 30 minutes later, Paul David Tripp is in his room waiting for his son to eventually come back to him. And he hears the pitter-patter of little feet. And they come to his father and they go, his son goes, hey, I can't do it. I can't do it. It is not working. Now, Paul David Tripp could have very much, very easily said, hey, I told you it wasn't going to work. Go away from me. But no, he didn't do that. I imagine in that moment, Paul David Tripp probably got down on one knee. He got on the level with his son and looked into his eyes. And he says, listen, I forgive you and let your daddy do it. In the same posture, our king stepped out of glory, came to earth, lived a perfect life kneel down in the muck and the mire in the midst of our defeat. He says, you've tried to do it your own way. You've chased after the things you wanted to chase after. You, it has not yielded to you what you desired it to yield. But I want you to know that I'm here. And I will take it on. And I will pay the price if you're willing to accept it. Because see, in that moment, Paul David Tripp's son could have rejected his hug. He could have went to try to do it his own way. But in that moment of defeat, that little boy put his arms around his father's neck and embraced grace that he could not earn. Listen to me. For some of us, we have found ourselves in the midst of defeat and we think that our father has given up on us and our father is mad at us. Can I just tell you, your king is not mad at you. Sometimes the only way that we as a very stubborn people are able to receive the grace that he offers so freely is to come to the ends of ourselves. And he, being a good king, 
is willing to allow us to come to the end of ourselves so that we can accept the good gift of grace. My question to you is, are you willing to accept it? If you would, bow your heads for me. Lord, thank you that we come to this place and we come to this space And some of us are in the midst of defeat. Maybe it's by our own choices. Maybe it's by other circumstances. But, Lord, we come to you in this place. Maybe for some of us we have lived a defeated lives and we have not taken the hand of the king who desires to give us victory through his perfect life lived, his perfect sacrifice on the cross, and his resurrection over the grave. And so, Father, in this place, even for those watching online, maybe it is time where we go, you know what? Maybe this defeat is being leveraged for my good and for your glory. And so maybe, just maybe, as an act of obedience, you need to come and pray. And I want you to know, these steps are our altar this morning. Where you can come and you can pray and you can just reach out to God and you can just go, God, I'm coming to you in the midst of defeat. And I recognize where victory comes from. Maybe for you, you need to say yes to the king's invitation for the first time by saying, I accept what you have done on my behalf, and I will take hold of the victory that you have secured. I don't know what you need to do, but here's my encouragement to you. Be obedient. Daniel's going to sing over us, which is a perfect exclamation of this message. Run to the father again and again. But what I love about this picture, it's like the prodigal son. The father saw him far off, and then he ran towards his son, which was undignified. And a father had no business running after a wayward son, but that's exactly what he did. And our king has no business chasing after a wayward people, but that's what our king has done. He meets us in the midst of our defeat. And so, Father... May you move in this place. May your people be obedient. And may we sit in the grace that sometimes we cannot see. Lord, we love you. Lord, we thank you. And Lord, we pray all these things in your name. Amen. I've carried a burden Too long on my own I wasn't created to bear it alone. I hear your invitation to let it all go. I see it now, I'm laying it down, and I know that I need you I run through the fire I fall and the grace I'm done with the hiding the reason the way my heart needs a surgeon my soul needs a friend so I run through the father again and again and again and again oh Sing it out. You saw, you saw my condition. Had a plan from the start. 
your son for redemption, the price for my heart. I don't have a context for that kind of love, no. I don't understand, I can't comprehend. All I know is I need you. I run to the Father, I fall into grace. I'm done with the hiding, no reason to wait. My heart needs a searcher, my soul needs a friend. So I run to the Father again and again and again and again. Running into your arms is running to life from death. I feel this rush deep in my chest. Your mercy is calling out just as I am. You pull me in and I know I need you. To the Father, I fall into grace. I'm done with the hiding, no reason to wait. My heart needs a surgeon, my soul needs a friend. So I run to the Father again and again. Oh, I run to the Father, I fall into grace. I'm done with the hiding, no reason to wait. My my soul found a friend, so I'll run to the Father again and again and again and again. 